0: Hey, it's Justin Valdez here, and you're listening to the Strike Zone Podcast. All right, thanks for joining me on another episode of the Strike Zone Podcast available on iTunes, Spotify, and Launchpad DM. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter at Podcast Strike. Plenty to talk about today with the dust finally settling on the 2020 NFL Draft, uh, who the biggest winners were, and who are, were a couple of the biggest losers coming out of the weekend. But first, let's, uh, let's talk about the episodes three and four from the Last Dance documentary chronicling the 98 Chicago Bulls. We uh, really learn a lot about Dennis Rodman here in these uh, these two episodes In the first, uh, in episode three, uh, you kind of take a look at Dennis's childhood and his upbringing and where he started playing basketball. And um, I'll always say this about Dennis: going back, just remembering seeing him play on the court, just the hustle, the amount of hustle he had on on the court. Just no one hustled harder. No one out hustled him. No one outplayed him when he was on the court. Um, his determination, his will, just, man, you could see it when he was out there playing, battling under the rim. But what surprised me a lot with this documentary and, you know, the the behind-the-scenes looking looks at, at Dennis was just his basketball IQ. How smart and intelligent he was about the game. I mean, he talks about he would just spend hours under the rim. He would, you know tell his buddies hey you know just shoot it just shoot the ball and he would just stand under the rim and watch the different ways the ball would bounce off the rim so he can get a rebound and he he did that for hours just learning okay if he shoots this way the ball's going to bounce up this way or it's going to go that way and it's just that just made him that much of a great rebounder it's not like the guy had a ton of body weight to be throwing around, but he knew that and he worked on, he's such a man. There was one point in that documentary where you see his basketball IQ when he's sitting there talking to Jordan on the sidelines, you know, Hey, should I be going here? You know, I'm, if I do this, this guy's going to do this. It's just incredible to listen to. And you see how much film he studied on certain players and how to defend them Amazing, amazing! Like I will always consider uh, Dennis Rodman one of the best uh, hustlers. Not I wouldn't say centers or forwards, but he was one of the best hustlers in the in the league. I mean, you don't like he said the do the Bulls win those championships? Championships without him from '96 to '98? Uh, yeah, they had Dennis and or excuse me, yeah they had Scotty. MJ had Scotty, but. I don't know. I don't. I don't think they they win without the hustle and the, the defensive play from from Dennis down there uh, in the post. Uh, we also kind of uh, see the early days. It goes back to the early days of the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan's career when the Bulls went out and hired Doug Collins to be their head coach, and uh, Doug basically told you know Jordan. You know, I'm I'm putting the ball in your hands now. This is this is your team. You know, we'll go from there. You're the number one guy, so it's your time now, and that that worked pretty well, you know, for the most part until the Bulls went up against, you know, the bigger teams or the more rounded teams like the Celtics and the Bad Boy Pistons. Uh, it's yeah. and speaking of the uh, early days with Doug and, and MJ there's a there's one part it shows you know Doug Collins talking about his very first game as a head coach of the Chicago Bulls they were in Madison Square Garden playing against the Knicks and you see Doug just drenched completely drenched in in sweat with his little curly half mullet he's got going on and you know Jordan comes up to him and he, the game's coming down to the wire and I think the Bulls are down. They need a last-second shot and Jordan comes up to Doug. He's like, you know, relax. I got this. I'm not gonna let you lose your first, your very first game as a head coach. You know, in that game, Jordan just went off. Score. He put up 50 points. I think he, at the time, he he broke a record for most points at the Garden by a visiting player. And sure enough, Doug wins his very first game as the Chicago Bulls head coach. I mean, what is that? There's another story that I don't know if it goes to I don't know if it shows how cocky Jordan was or just how confident he was because well, let's fast forward a little bit that season in night. Uh, not that season, but a couple seasons later, when Doug and Jordan are in the '89. Uh, playoffs, the first round, they take on the the Cavaliers, Cleveland, and uh, a lot of people were riding the Bulls off here. They the Bulls managed to take Cleveland to Game Five, and coming in, there was about three riders. I don't know if they were from there were local riders in Cleveland, but three riders they were sitting courtside, and one rider had the Bulls losing, getting swept in the first round. Another had, I believe, the Bulls maybe winning two games. And then, oh, no, no, one game. And then the final rider had the Bulls losing in five. So Jordan walks up to the riders. He tells the first one that had them being swept. He said, we took care of you. Then he tells the second rider like, that only had the Bulls winning one game. And we also took care of you. Then he tells the last rider, and tonight we take care of you. So, I mean, geez, so then they go out, the Bulls go out, and that's the game where Jordan hits the the last second, you know, jump shot game winner and beats the Cavs. So, like I said, I mean, the greatness of him back then, I mean, he wasn't even the Michael Jordan that we all remember him to be, and yet he wasn't, you know, Air Jordan. He wasn't the great Jordan the Great, the greatest of all time, the GOAT. And so... For him to just tell these writers it's just like, oh man, <laughs> if you're a writer, if you're those guys, you got to be thinking, yeah, right, get out of here, you know. But he goes out and he does it. He proves him wrong. The f- funny part of that story too is uh, Ron Harper, who we all know was a teammate of Jordan on the that '98 Bulls team. Well, Harper was with the Cavs that year in '80, back in '89, and he tells that the head coach for the Cavs, like, you know. I'm gonna guard Jordan. I got him. And then the head coach says, "No." On that final play where Jordan hits the game winner, he's like, "No, don't worry about it. I, I we'll put this other guy on him." And Harper was pissed. He didn't. He didn't like that. So he says, "You know, he's like, oh well, whatever. That's effing bull." So so Jordan goes out and he hits that game winner. It's it'll be in, You know, we'll never know if Harper was on Jordan. Does Jordan make the shot? Does Harper Garden better? I mean, obviously, Harper was a better defender than the guy who was on Jordan, actually put on Jordan at the time. So, but, yeah, like I said, I mean, Jordan going out, you know, telling Doug, don't worry, we're going to, you know, you're not going to lose your first game, and then going and telling those riders, you know, we took care of you guys or we're going to take care of you. Just, geez, man, that... Like the confidence in him to be able to go out and say that and then back it up. Oh, man, that's that's amazing. I'm just I, I I'm in awe. Every time I see stories like that about Michael on this documentary, it's just like, man, it just blows me away how confident he was. Just, he's such a great, and, and obviously the GOAT, greatest of all time. I don't want to hear any other arguments. I don't care who you think is the greatest. He is the greatest of all time. Another interesting thing coming out of this documentary is I growing up I always believed that Phil Jackson was the creator of the triangle offense. I mean, he used it so well in Chicago and then when he went on to coach the Lakers also implemented the triangle offense there. But the the documentary reveals that actually the the guy who came up with it was Tex Winter. Um, Jerry Krause the Bulls GM uh, Was pretty fond of Tex um, He hired him He hired him on with the Bulls As an associate And he He had Bill Excuse me Phil Phil Jackson was a Assistant head coach at the time and Tex was Was working with Phil And he pretty much Told him you know hey this is the triangle Offense and Phil really took to it Phil really liked the triangle but Doug Doug didn't want to hear anything about the triangle offense. He didn't care because it took the ball out of Michael's hands a lot. And Michael didn't Michael hated the triangle offense at first. He even says it in the documentary. He's like, no, I mean you're taking the ball out of my hands and you're putting it into somebody else's hands to make a, a shot. No, I want the ball. But Jerry Krause was adamant like I want the triangle offense inserted into this Bulls team. And so Doug, you know, he refused, and that ultimately ended uh, Doug Collins' time with the Bulls, and after the 89 season when Chicago lost to to the Bad Boys uh, Pistons in the, in the in the Eastern Conference Finals, you know, it's crazy to think that Doug Collins lost his job after that, and the Bulls went and hired, uh, they promoted, excuse me, they promoted Phil from being the assistant head coach to now the head coach and Phil adopted the triangle offense and like I said Jordan was not having it at first he he hated the idea he didn't want he didn't want the ball in anybody else's hands but you know Phil this you really learn too in these these episodes I'm gonna say it here I think Phil Phil Jackson is probably the greatest head coach of all time I mean Geez, just the stuff that Phil had to deal with in that final season, you know, he had to deal with Scotty holding out, pretty much, you know, throwing a temper tantrum because he wanted to, he wasn't getting paid enough, but he was supposedly hurt. Uh, then you had De- Dennis, Dennis Rodman wanted his little vacation time in Vegas, so he's dealing with that. Then you had to deal with you know Michael Jordan, and you had to deal with the fact that Jerry Krause told you. This is it, you're not coming back no matter what happens after this. I mean, he had his hands full in that final season, and to be able to do the things that he still did with that team, incredible. Incredible. And just knowing the type of person he Phil is now, just you know, they call him the Zen master for a reason. <laughs> Funny, uh the his his relationship with Dennis Rodman was really interesting too. Um, We all know Dennis is an eccentric guy. You know he's got the, the colored hair, the piercings. But the story that he tells, that Phil tells about Dennis and how they bonded was, I thought was really cool as well. I mean, Phil was really into you know Native American history, Native American heritage, and he had a bunch of Native American artifacts and and stuff in his in his office and one day Dennis goes into his office and he's like oh man you know you're really into native american stuff too cuz apparently Dennis Rodman was and Dennis showed him that showed Phil that he was wearing a native american necklace that he had i guess Dennis uh so they really they really bonded over that and so you know Phil Phil knew how to handle Dennis and that's why he let him go on that that 48-hour bender, which in Vegas, which we all know, ended up being a lot more than 48 hours in the store. It's funny they had Carmen Electra, who was Dennis's girlfriend at the time, in the documentary, and she says, you know, Michael Michael Jordan came and knocked on Dennis's door, and Carmen Electra says she hid behind the couch with a sheet, So she didn't want to be seen seen by Jordan, and so you know Michael went and got Dennis because he had been gone more than the time he said he would be and he brought him back to the team you know and so I think that that was a pretty interesting inter- interesting story there and you know Dennis is on this bender in Vegas and he's smoking and he's drinking just partying it up having a good time letting loose and then he comes back and Phil's basically you know punishing the whole team for Dennis being gone, he's making him do these these laps where the person in the front of the of the line pretty much sets the pace. And Jordan's like, "Man, all you guys better not run fast. You know, you better not be sprinting. I'm telling you right now, if you're in the front, you go out there and you just pretty much to a jog, to a real slow crawl. We're not we're not going out there and busting our asses no way." And then Dennis gets to the front of the line, and Dennis is just sprinting his, his you know his heart out. It's just no like he hasn't lost any type of conditioning whatsoever. So I mean, just to be just to be able to stay in shape like that, I'm smoking cigars, you know, four days and drinking, and uh, it's just amazing the the type of stuff that the Dennis Rodman was able to do and the shape he was in. And it's, <laughs> the stories, man, that's probably the most enjoyable part about this documentary is the stories that that you really get to know and hear from these guys like Michael and Dennis and Phil. It, it, you get to, the, you get a peek behind the scenes and what, what it was like that year, which is awesome. This has been one of the best and most fun documentaries to sit there and watch. See how it all plays out. I mean, we know how it, how it ends, but to see how they get there is something else. It's quite the journey these guys were on at the time. And episode four, wow! Episode four, we uh, takes a uh, takes us into the the bad boy Pistons and how much they were hated. And you really, yeah, uh, after watching this episode, you really kind of get a a dislike for them. And you know, and Michael Jordan. To this day, you can see he has so much disdain for the Detroit pist that Detroit Pistons team and and Isaiah Thomas, because they beat him down and physically so bad, uh, but you know with in those early years, and that was the team that Jordan needed to get over the hump against. But you know after '89, after them, after the. Bulls losing to the Pistons in 89, which they probably could have beaten the the Pistons that year. They took them to a Game 7, but obviously Game 7 is known as the migraine game. It's the game that Scottie Pippen came down with a migraine and he couldn't really play. He says it that he couldn't really see. He was out there seeing double. He was blinded at times. I mean, many some people question, like, ah, oh, did he really have a migraine or was he... Was he intimidated by the by the Pistons? And I don't know. I'm not gonna sit here and and say, oh, well, he was scared of the Pistons or anything like that. I mean, migraines are no joke. If he legit had a migraine, then that's what it was. I mean, going out, you can't play with the lights. You know, your sense when you have a migraine, you're sensitive to lights and noises and sounds, and and that's the worst place to be at is an arena full of people with the bright lights and the sounds if you have a migraine. So, you know, they they could have beaten the Pistons then, but they didn't, um, cost Doug call. Well, that was one of the things that cost Doug Collins his job. They bring in Phil. And then the following year, that off season, (laughs) the bulls after losing right away, they go back into the weight room and they start practicing and putting on muscle. They're tired. They're getting basically getting tired of getting beaten down. So they, they pack on the muscle and, and they go and you know they they start they say you know this that's enough we're fighting back we're not taking this anymore and sure enough i mean jeez they they go and they fight back and they finally get over the hump in, in 1990 and they they go on and they win their first championship they well they beat the the pistons in the eastern conference finals and then we all see the the pistons just walk off they don't congratulate them i think they'll, there was a couple guys that that may have have uh, stayed around and, and said, you know, congratulate their congratulations. And head coach Chuck Daly also stayed around. But, you know, Isaiah Thomas, Bill Lambert, all those guys, they, they just walked off the court. And, you know, their lame excuse was, oh, well, when we beat the Boston Celtics a couple years ago, Boston just walked off the court. And they didn't say anything to us. They didn't give us any congratulations. So that's how we wanted to pass the torch uh, to Chicago. Which I—that's a lame. That's so lame. Such a lame cop out. And that's another reason why Jordan and and company hated hated the Pistons. I mean, John Sally stuck around. John Sally even says later on that he he told Chuck, you know, I'm not. I'm not with this whole walking off deal. Just put me back in the game. And, and you know, uh, he was like, why? Why? You're not going to get any more points or anything. And Just John Sally was like, no, I, I just, I want to be out there. I'm not going to go back and, and walk off the court like these guys, which, you know, hats off to John Sally for that. But he would go later go on to be uh, a teammate of Michael Jordan. So that, that was interesting. Yeah, just, oh, just. The, the pistons, man. They're they're really uh they're really gonna be hated even more if possible after this documentary or after episode four. Just the way they, they bullied they were bullies of the leagues back then and they show they had the Jordan rules, which, you know, pretty much they said if Jordan, you know, get him to the ground, knock him to the ground before he takes flight. Because once he's in the air, that's it. You're not you're not stopping him. So ground him, you know, make sure he doesn't take off and get in the air just knock him to the ground before that you see it man but but not once not once do you see Jordan fighting back or c- c- crying complaining to the refs he's, he just takes it man it just comes back you know he's just like that like that Jordan with the bulls against the Pistons the way they handled him and knocked him to the ground and the way he kept coming back reminded me of Rocky when Apollo Creed is just beating down Rocky, beating him down, beating him down. And Rocky just keeps coming back and he tells him like, come on, let's go. And then, you know, you see Apollo just like, man, what do I got to do to this guy? And that's, that's what I think when I think of Jordan going up against that bad boys Pistons team, it's just like, what did they have to do to this guy just to keep him down? They couldn't, they couldn't keep him down. He was, he'd always get back up and, that's you know that goes to him his mental and physical toughness. He's like, no, they're not gonna get the best of me. They're not. I'm not gonna let them. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep taking it to them. And so I'm. That, that's pretty much where the episode four ends. They finally get over the bulls. Finally get over the hump and they they beat the Los Angeles Lakers for their first world title. Uh, which you know so we'll see. We'll see how the episode, I believe, five and six are, um, if they're anything like these last episodes. It's crazy. Uh, going back to um, uh, the the non handshake and the the Pistons walking off. Uh, one more person, which I thought it was interesting, they they talk, uh, they gave a little time to in the documentary was uh, Bulls forward Horace Grant, and uh, Horace tell Horace is famous for his line in that. That documentary where you tell they asked him, you know, what would you think about the Pistons walking off? Horace also hated, couldn't stand the Pistons, and he's he, his thoughts on on the whole them walking off, not shaking hands, he called it a bitch move. So <laughs> that, I thought that was that was pretty funny because a lot of you see a lot of people uh, the next day talking like you know Horace said exactly what everybody was thinking when that happened at the time. So that's that's funny and interesting. Uh, it's been such a great. Great documentary. Uh, episode 3 about Dennis Rodman, like I said, it was probably so far uh, my favorite episode. Um, like I said, Dennis Rodman, when I was growing up, he was one of my favorite players. Um, he, obviously, he wasn't a scorer, but... And it, it, he just, his hustle off the, on, excuse me, on the court, and then to learn about how smart he was off the court about the game, his basketball IQ just made me... Really respect him even more than the respect I already had for him. Uh, so just to know the kind of, you know, person he was, and he was, he was mis misunderstood off the court. I mean, that I think part of the the documentary talks about uh, Madonna's relationship with with Dennis when when those two started dating each other. It was when Den I think when Dennis left Detroit to go play in San Antonio which was not a great fit for Dennis at all and you know Madonna told him you got to be you know got to be you you got to be who you are and you know he obviously he didn't fit in in San Antonio that's when he started coloring his hair and and doing showing the piercings and you know doing started doing the off the wall stuff off the court and San Antonio was just not for it so you know he ended up in Chicago and like I said, it was a perfect fit for him because Phil, Phil knew how Dennis was, and he knew how to how to handle Dennis, and they knew how, they bonded over the their native their love for Native American heritage and and everything, and you know Phil had them in, in the in the practice facilities doing yoga, and so Phil was definitely not your atypical head coach, and that worked perfect for Dennis because he wasn't your typical ball player and so that was that was pretty cool. nice to see. Uh, made me appreciate Dennis Rodman and, and Phil Jackson even more for that matter on that on the uh, episode three and four. So we'll see how these uh, these next episodes go I don't I can't imagine them getting any worse. I mean it's just gradually getting better and better. Let's talk about some uh, let's talk some NFL here the the draft 2020 draft the virtual draft as you will ha- happened over the weekend and it was interesting to see I mean <laughs> one of the one of the best parts of that draft is seeing Jerry Jones Cowboys owner Jerry Jones drafting from his you know millions of dollar yacht <laughs> that was that was pretty of course Jerry that was typical Jerry Jones fashion he's got to do everybody up. With his, oh, I'm going to draft on a yacht deal, which, that was, you know, that was pretty cool. Um, so, you know, my takeaways from the draft, I got about 10 winners and a couple of the biggest losers from the draft. So my, uh, let's start with out west in the AFC. Uh, this whole division to me um, pretty much won. <laughs> a really really good draft. Uh the Super Bowl champions, I mean they're not they weren't winners, they weren't losers. They 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 had a solid draft. They took what they needed. Um, but the the winners to me were the Chargers drafting uh Justin Herbert number 4 overall. I mean the guy's 6'6", 236 pounds you know, from Oregon. He's they needed a uh Their future at the cornerback spot Now that Phillip Rivers is out in Indianapolis and I think Herbert could be that guy We'll see Um, For now they're going to go with Tyrod Taylor I can't Imagine that Herbert would Start this season unless He goes out and just out Balls Tyrod Taylor in training camp I kind of would like to see Herbert maybe take this year off and just rock with Tyrod Taylor You have him there for a year Go out and let Herbert Kind of get acclimated to this Offense, but I mean, c- kind of depends On how training camp is If training camp go- comes along and Herbert just is Blowing everybody away and On that Chargers team And he's just picking up everything well Then absolutely, just might as well He's the future, just start him I mean, you got Tyrod Taylor on a one year deal anyways He could be a, a good backup for you so it'll be interesting to see what what Sandy, what excuse me what Los Angeles does there with the with their quarterback spot. And then in the fourth round they took uh, running back Josh Kelly out of UCLA, which was a really good uh, pickup for them. They they needed a running back to replace uh, Melvin Gordon. They still have Eckler there, but I mean Kelly in the fourth round's a pretty good pretty good pickup. And then in the fifth round they get. Uh, wide receiver Joe Reed out of Virginia. I mean, he's 6'1", 224, So they got size there to go along with their good uh, young receiving core. Then we go to Las Vegas, the Raiders, where the draft should have happened, but unfortunately it didn't. And the commissioner announcing that the RAFs the the Raiders will get a a mulligan on the draft. So next year, the twenty twenty one draft will indeed be in Las Vegas. Um, that being said, this year the Raiders, I think, really, really big winners here. They go out and get their speed wide receiver uh, with the 12th pick. They take Henry Ruggs, the third out of Alabama. I mean, he could easily be like a Tyreek Hill type of player. He's got that speed. I'm interested to see how he fits into this John Gruden West Coast offense. And so they they went out and got. You know, a great, great wide wide receiver there. Then I thought they might have reached a little bit uh, by taking cornerback uh, Damon Arnett in with their their nineteenth pick. I think I don't think he was the best cornerback available on the board, but I mean they got him. They they needed a cornerback. Uh, that secondary is probably their lone weak spot on defense. Uh, and then they also addressed their safety spot in the third round. They got Tanner Muse out of Clemson. I thought that was a really good spot there for them to take Tanner. Um, so they, they got their wide receiver, so their speed guy. They got a couple uh, players in uh, in the in the secondary that they needed. So I think the Raiders really drafted well this year. And that you know that goes to show you Mike Mayock and John Gruden working together. Man, those two um, good pairing so far. Uh, and then you go to Denver, the Broncos. Broncos having a really good draft, too, considering uh, all the picks they had. Jeez. So uh, the ones that stood out for me is uh, they took Jerry Judy, the, the big uh, wide receiver out of Alabama. So they got Drew Locke some help, obviously. John Elway believes Drew Locke is the quarterback of the future for those guys. So they went out and got him some help. They got Jerry Judy to go alongside the uh the other young receivers they got out there and then they picked up Melvin Gordon too, not in the draft, but they traded for Gordon, which was crazy for the Chargers to trade uh probably their best offensive player to their rival. Yeah, I don't know how that worked, but okay. Um then in the second round they also they went wide receiver again. They got uh K J Hamler from Penn State. So they went pretty offensive heavy to uh, get some weapons for For Drew Locke And then in the third round They got cornerback Michael Og. Ogim- ah, I'm gonna ruin Butcher his name Og Mudia uh, From Iowa So They lost a couple They lost uh, Roby I think it was uh, Cornerback uh so they went and picked up uh, this cornerback in the draft. Great spot there in the third round. So yeah, that and AFC West solid, really solid draft there. Those guys, uh, they're definitely coming after the Chiefs this year. Uh, so we'll we'll see see how that uh, that plays out. Uh, let's take a look at the AFC North now. Uh, I think the Lions and the Vikings had really really good drafts here. Um, the Lions. They got rid of Darius Slay. A lot of people say, why would you get rid of Darius Slay only to draft another cornerback? Well, Darius Slay obviously wasn't a fit for that team, the front office, the head coaching, and his contract. So the Lions, with their fifth pick, they get uh, Jeff Okuda, the cornerback out of Ohio State. A lot of people had Jeff uh, as the Top cornerback coming out of the draft, so that was a nice pickup for them. They also in the second round they also got uh, DeAndre Smith, the running back out of Georgia, which I mean lately, geez, Georgia is like running back you. So that that's a nice pickup for them in the second round. And then in the fifth round, uh, they got a wide receiver, you know, a little larger wide receiver. They got Quint- Quintez Cephas out of Wisconsin, and got some help for uh, Matthew Stafford there. So nice, nice little draft for them. And then you go Minnesota here. Minnesota, they kind of, they were kind of all they needed a lot in the draft, and they addressed that. Uh, they let go of a couple defense key defensive players. Obviously, they didn't don't have Stefan Diggs anymore. He's in uh, Buffalo now. So what do they do? They go out number. They're the number fourteenth overall pick. They traded, or then excuse me, they didn't trade, but they selected a. Uh, wide receiver Justin Jefferson out of UCLA excuse me LSU Justin Jefferson from LSU and so they hopefully they're well they're hoping that Jefferson can you know kind of fill the void now left behind by, by Diggs' departure and then in, with their number 31 pick overall they got Jeff Gladney the cornerback from uh, TCU good pick up there and then they go out and in then the round three, and they pick up another cornerback in Cam Dantzler from Mississippi State. So they went they're pretty balanced in their draft and picked up who they needed on both sides. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, they both of those teams really really had a good solid draft, and uh, they they won. They were the best out of their division. Let's go over to the AFC East now. The Dolphins. Uh, I think the Dolphins were the big winners out of that division. Uh, you had them taking Tua at number five. They obviously addressed their quarterback issue there. I think Tua could be a really solid quarterback for them. Obviously their future, and they hope so. Then with the 18th overall pick, they needed somebody to protect Tua, and they got an, they got offensive tackle Austin Jackson at a USC. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Austin Jackson's story, gr- great kid here. Uh, He went and helped – he went and donated his bone marrow to his little sister uh, dealing with cancer, and so he had – I believe he missed some time at USC because of that. But, geez, man, you know, the drive of that kid. uh, Hats off to him. You know, much respect for him for doing that. And then also the Dolphins trading for uh, running back Matt Breida from the 49ers getting some – Possible weapons for for Tua there on the in the run game. Uh, I think he'll fit in well in in Miami with the speed, the the cheetah, cheetah two, because Tyreek Hill claims he's cheetah one. So the you know pretty good draft there for Miami. Let's uh, head on over to the NFC South and I think the big big winner of the NFC South. I mean they won free agency and now they won the NFL draft. Is uh, the Bucks, the Tampa Bay they. Take uh, Tristan Tristan Wurfs actually falls to number thirteen. Their uh, offensive tackle out of Iowa, they get protection for Tom Brady, which I think that's going to be the biggest issue for Tampa. Uh, is can they protect Tom? And they're obviously they they know this, so they went and drafted an offensive tackle there in the first round, and then in the second round they go and they get safety Antoine Winfield Jr. You know out of Minnesota. Address uh, the secondary issue, which pretty good pickup there. And then, so the crazy thing is before the draft even happens, or or I think it was yeah, it was before the draft even happened. Last week, you had the Bucks trading for Rob Gronkowski, who came out of retirement. Uh, he said he wanted to come out of retirement and play for the Bucks and play with Tom Brady. He told the Pats. The Pats said okay they worked out a deal they weren't going to eat his contract so they said okay we'll trade him then and they traded him to Tampa and they so Tampa Bay I mean they picked up Rob Gronkowski so Gronk and, and Brady back at it again this time in Tampa which obviously goes to show you that Gronk was just tired of the Bill Belichick way he didn't really want <clears throat> excuse me he didn't really want to retire he was just tired of the way Bill Belichick ran ran the team there in New England, and he wanted out, and he got his way out. He he joins Tom, joins his best friend out in Tampa Bay. Uh, AFC North, I didn't have really any big winners out of that uh, out of that division. Uh, to me, the they all had solid, pretty solid drafts, um, but I, I didn't really see anybody as a real big winner. Now let's go afc south we had i think the colts probably had the best draft and i had them as a real big winner in the in the draft there uh, and this they didn't have any first round picks because they obviously traded that away to the 49ers for DeForest Buckner which great pickup for the, the colts there yeah so in the second round they took a wide receiver michael Pittman from usc massive massive guy there is 64 223 pounds so you have pitman on one side i mean he's a guy that's just going to go up and snatch balls out of the air he's a big body wide receiver and then the other side you got um uh, ty hilton the the burner the the route runner the guy so i mean you got weapons for philip rivers let's I mean, it let's see if philip can go out and, and get it done there uh who else did they take they took uh in the the second round, they also took running back Jonathan Taylor from Wisconsin. I think he's a he'll be a nice little addition to the Colts there. They, uh, so they're again, once again, going offense, picking up pieces for Phillip Rivers. And then what was really, really good that I think that the Colts did is taking quarterback Jacob Eason out of Washington in the fourth round here. Um, he's not obviously he's not going to come in and start, but he could be the the quarterback of the future for the Colts. You got you rock with Phillip Rivers now, and Eason sits behind uh, Phillip Rivers and he learns, and that's that's a great thing because he's a fourth. You picked him up in the fourth round, so he can he can sit there and learn behind Phillip Rivers. Uh, n- not many better teachers than that there. So good job by the Colts front office there and and the way they drafted. I think uh, that division is there's the lose now. And then we go. Um, the, my final big winner. Oh no, no, two more, two more. So uh, let's go NFC East here. Uh, I had the Cowboys. Cowboys were at when the draft was first after round one. I didn't really think the Cowboys were gonna have a, a good draft, looking at what they did. Um, but then the the rest of the draft was. It, it turned out really good for for those guys uh in the first round CD Lamb wide receiver out of Oklahoma fell to the Cowboys at 17 and did they take what they needed there uh no they obviously didn't need a wide receiver but they took the best available player on the board that they thought at the time and and CD Lamb who brings a, another threat to that Cowboys offense now which wow, they're stacked they just got to work out that deal with with Dak and then in the second round uh See, I, sh- I believed the Cowboys should have went defense in the first round. But in the- they addressed that in the second round, especially that secondary. The Cowboys' secondary uh, kind of got burnt a lot last year. And they addressed it here in the second round. They got uh, Trayvon Diggs, the cornerback out of Alabama. So he'll be a nice little addition to that secondary. Then in the fourth round, they go out and they get uh, – the center for the Wisconsin Badgers there Tyler Biades I probably butchered his name I'm sorry for that um, But they're getting protection for, for Dak there So they went in and they got protection for Dak And then they got more weapons for him So good job by the Jerry Jones there In, in his draft uh, It pains me to say that Because I'm not a Cowboys fan at all Do not like Dallas But they had a solid draft The, the big winners there That the rest of that division with um, the exception of the giants who i'll get into in a minute had a solid pretty solid draft there and my last big winner of the draft is uh the san francisco 49ers i mean what a draft these guys had here uh first of all they they traded away deforest buckner to get another first round draft pick because you know they didn't really have too many i believe after round betweens round two and three. Two through four, they didn't really have any picks. So they decided, hey, you know, he can't afford to give DeForest Buckner the money he wants. Let's go out and get another draft pick for him, a high draft pick for him since we don't have these. Too many of them. And that's what they did. They traded Buckner to the Colts, and they picked up the Colts' uh, 13th pick. And then (laughs) John Lynch, the genius of John Lynch, he goes and he trades the thirteenth pick, they trade back one spot, and they uh, they trade away their thirteenth pick and some other stuff. They just swap picks basically, and they get at number fourteen. They get uh, Javon Kinlaw from South Carolina, the defensive tackle, to replace Buckner, which was I thought was a really good pickup here. I'm glad they didn't go wide receiver. Uh, I think the 49ers are kind of stacked at at wide receiver. Um, uh, People might not agree with me on that, and they just traded away Marquise Goodwin to the Eagles. But, I mean, they have a good young core of guys. They got, uh, I think it's Trent Taylor coming back off his foot injury. I think he'll bounce back, good slot receiver. But they have Jalen Hurd. Jalen Hurd didn't play a single game in the regular season last year because he got injured in the preseason. But he's a 6'4 guy coming out of Baylor, former running back, he's got size. I think Jalen Hurd will have a really, really good season this year. And they also picked up Travis Benjamin in free agency. So I think their they're receiving crew is pretty solid. You got Debo's, they're obviously number one. But I I look at Jalen Hurd to come in have an immediate impact and be a real, real uh, good threat for that 49ers offense. And then to add on top of that, though, that they went out and they drafted Brandon Ayuk, the wide receiver from Arizona State. So they got their speed guy. You know, they got a guy who couldn't move around in the offense and, you know, he could be out wide or he could be in the slot, but he's got plenty of speed. So they got their little deep threat down the field, their speed, deep threat there. Um, And then probably the best move. Um, in the draft was uh, uh, trading for Trent Williams, the offensive tackle out of from Washington from the Redskins. There, uh, unfortunately, you know it's an end of an era in San Francisco. Uh, the great Joe Staley announced his retirement. Uh, we're all sad. As a Forty Nine er fan, you're you know you're sad to see him go. Uh, Joe Staley's probably gonna go down as one of the greatest uh, offensive linemen in the history of the league, certainly, uh, for the 49ers. Um, but you replace him with a guy like Trent Williams, man, that, you know, that goes to show you John Lynch knows what he's doing. You know, a lot of people questioned the 49ers when they made that move to hire John Lynch as a, as general manager, because he had no, no experience at it, but he, him and him and Kyle Shanahan, they really have that team going. They, they're really they re-upped well They're bringing back I think 18 of 22 starters From last season They got uh, Jarek McKinnon who still hasn't Took a single snap for the 49ers Because of injuries uh, Raheem Mostert coming back Who had an incredible breakout season That nobody saw coming So yeah hats off to the 49ers front office for re-upping And, and picking up the, the guys Making the moves and picking up the guys they did So uh, that brings me to my biggest losers, uh, and two mainly two main losers that I want to talk about here uh, for the NFL, the draft. Uh, first is this the New York Giants. Uh, kind of scratching my head at at what they did here uh, in the draft. They took uh, at number four. They took offensive lineman Andrew Thomas out of Georgia, which I can't believe they did. I mean, geez, he wasn't even the highest ranked uh offensive lineman on the board at the time. I mean I get you wanna you want protection for your quarterback, but he wasn't the the best lineman out there, so kind of scratched my head at that. And then they not a single wide receiver taken in the draft at all for the Giants. At all. So I mean, what are they doing? They didn't get any any help on offense there. It's just blows my mind that I don't know what they were doing in that draft um uh, just yeah scratching my head on that one uh I think they uh, reached too much with the the Thomas pick um and then not drafting any any wide receivers is I just how I mean I get you're not going to draft a running back because you got Saquon Barkley but Daniel Jones needs help and you don't go out and you you don't go out and get any help. And then I hear that they're shopping, possibly shopping Evan Ingram. their are tight end. So it's just, what are they doing out there in, in, in New York? Um, and then probably my biggest loser of the draft. Uh, sorry, Green Bay Packers fans. But a lot of you might be feeling the same way here. Uh, Jordan Love in the first round. Uh, I mean, I get what the Packers were doing here. They... They want their quarterback of the future. But I think Jordan Love in the first round was way too high. Just makes no sense. I mean, and a lot of people were like, hey, why didn't they take a, a wide receiver? Why didn't they get Aaron Rodgers any help? I mean, look at look at the history of the Packers and you know why. They haven't selected a wide receiver in the first round in about five or six years now. So that's no surprise there. Uh, the biggest surprise is the fact that they didn't take – or the fact that they did take a quarterback at number 26. Uh, you could have went anywhere else at, with that pick, and, and it would have been a good decision. You could have got help for Aaron Rodgers on the offensive line or protection for him on the offensive line, help for him as a wide receiver, which the wide receiver class was stacked. You could have went that route. But then the fact that they went and got Jordan Love just – God. So what does that say about the future of Aaron Rodgers? Who knows. You know, we'll see. And the, then they also they they also didn't address probably their biggest weakness uh, on the defensive side of the ball, cornerback. They didn't take any cornerback in the draft. Uh, the 49ers burned them twice uh, badly in the two games that they played last season and they didn't even address that spot. So that's why I believe the Packers are the biggest losers of the NFL draft. Um, it's in. I'll, it'll be interesting to see what Aaron Rodgers thinks. He might not go come out and say anything. I doubt he will. But, yeah, so no help for Aaron Rodgers there. Good luck. Good good luck, Green Bay, uh, next season. I mean, you got Aaron Rodgers, but is it going to be enough to get you back to the The NFC title game, I don't know. You got the rest of the division kind of snipping at your heels there. Uh, So, yeah. All right, one last thing before we go here. Uh, Dana White announcing UFC 249 going on May 9th in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, This card is actually pretty stacked. Um, The main... The main card features uh, Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje for the interim lightweight title. It was supposed to be originally supposed to be Tony Ferguson and Khabib Nurmagomedov to unify the title, but again, for the fifth or sixth time, this that fight fell through, didn't happen. Khabib allegedly couldn't get can't get back into the U.S. for the fight, so that's not happening now. Uh, so interim title fight, it is. And then a, a title fight that really has me scratching my head. Uh, light, or excuse me, bantamweight title fight. Uh, Henry Cejudo defending the title against Dominic Cruz. Uh, I thought Dominic Cruz had retired, but I guess not. His last fight was in December of 2016. So almost four years, three and a half years ago was the last time Dominic Cruz uh, stepped foot inside the octagon. And in that fight, he got back. Beaten down by Cody Garbrandt, so not the best outing. Yeah, so it's a little questionable what Dana was thinking here, or what uh, the the matchmakers were were thinking when they made this fight. Uh, it should be interesting, though. I mean, it'll we'll see if Dominic can keep Henry Henry Cejudo uh, at bay with his uh, wrestling. Uh, you know, Henry Cejudo, Olympic wrestler, I believe, and Dominic Cruz is no slouch uh, in the wrestling department either, but. Yeah, I mean, f- almost four years off. Ugh, that's that's tough. Then we have uh, Francis Ngannou. He's returning to the octagon in the the main card, but the prelim card. I mean, the prelim card could easily be like a UFC Fight Night with this lineup. the The main event of the prelim is Donald Cowboy Cerrone taking on Anthony Pettis. That that should have some fireworks, and then I'd be surprised if that thing goes uh, the full three rounds there. And you have uh, Alexei Olenek taking on Fabricio Verdum. Heavyweight fight there. And Carla Esparza versus Michelle the Karate Hottie Watterson. And uh, the, to kick things off is a uh, battle at middleweight between Uriah Hall and Jacare Sousa. So pretty, pretty stacked card here. Um, UFC 249, like I said, May 19th. Um, that'll be interesting. I, I don't know. I probably, this will probably be one I pass up on if it had been, you know, Tony Ferguson versus Khabib, then I'd probably definitely, uh, watch it, but yeah, not really too interested in the, that title fight, the Gaethje versus Ferguson. Don't really care. Uh, Suhudo versus Dominic Cruz. Like I said, eh, Cruz is coming off a nearly four year layoff. So yeah, we'll see, see what happens with that. All right, that, that'll do it for me today. Thanks for uh, tuning in everyone. Uh, next time, till next time and don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Podcast Strike and we are available on iTunes and iTunes, Spotify and Launchpad DM. All right, till next time.